Let's turn in our Bibles this morning to 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, we're going to commence reading at verse 1. Let us hear the word of God. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that ye be not soon shaken in mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, until he be taken out of the way. And then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion, that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned, who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, Beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. For unto he called you by our gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught whether by word or our epistle. For our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which have loved us and have given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Amen. We know that God will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now that chapter is a tremendous chapter and of course it 
impossible for me today to expound that chapter to you, but we will come back and look at it at a later time. I do welcome all of you this morning to the Lord's house. This, of course, is Reformation Sunday, and because it is, I have um, not read, therefore, from the book of Philippians that we have been expounding uh, these past few six or seven Sunday mornings, but we will return to it the next time I am back in the pulpit. Now, my text this morning is taken from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and the verse 15. It reads as follows, Therefore, brethren, stand fast, hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. And my theme today is a call to maintain the truths of the Reformation. On the 31st of October, 1517, a date of great significance, a date, I believe, chosen by God, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. In these 95 theses, Martin Luther was making his protest against the seal of indulgences. And indulgence was a papal paper pardon for sins committed or sins you intended to commit. Martin Luther, of course, was calling for a debate for a discussion, especially among the theologians and the students, as to how a man can be just before God. Literally, it was a question to do with the salvation of a sinner. How can a sinner be made righteous before God and brought into a right relationship with God? The 95 Theses, or Truthful Propositions, was all about that fundamental question. How can a man become a Christian? Or, or, or what is a Christian? And it was this question that lay at the very heart of the 95 Theses. And of course, this was a key moment in the history of the world. This nailing of the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg lit a fuse on a great chain of events was set in motion to the glory of God. Now, 500 years on, many are asking, what is the relevance of the Protestant Reformation today? In other words, what significance does it hold to life in the 21st century? After all, the 21st century is a different world to the world of the 15th century. And there's those that would tell us, surely we have enough to deal with in 2017 rather than harping back to 1517. What about the loss of jobs in Northern Ireland, Mr. McLaughlin? What about the state of things politically? What about the Abortion Act 50 years ago and the impact that it has had and still has to this day? What about the moral state of the country? Now let me say this morning, while all those questions are pertinent questions, and questions, of course, that demand and deserve an honest biblical answer, I want to say that the Protestant Reformation has every relevance 
to the 21st century. Let me also say that there's a great ignorance today of church history. Multitudes, even of professing believers, have no knowledge, not only of church history and key events, but also of key players in the 16th century. Men like Martin Luther, John Calvin, Philip Melanchthon, William Tyndale in England, John Knox in Scotland. There are many today who are ignorant of the lives of these key players in Reformation church history. They're also ignorant, as I've said, of key events. Literally, thousands are unfamiliar with and have no understanding of or no deep appreciation of or no desire with an appetite to know church history or the man that God chose behind the scenes. Doesn't the Bible say, my people are perished for lack of knowledge? And you see, a lack of knowledge today about church history and key men in the past suits the Church of Rome, suits the ecumenical movement, suits the liberal and modernistic minister so-called. If we ask the question, what about the Reformation? There are those who are going to pass it off as a tragedy, or as an unfortunate event, or as a mistake, or as a schism that shouldn't have happened. Now let me illustrate. Last week in the Belfast Telegraph, one of the contributors, uh, Mr. Alban McGuinness, a former barrister, a former MLA, a devoted Roman Catholic, wrote an article stating that from his perspective, and he was being absolutely honest, and he had a right, of course, to tell us what he was thinking, from his perspective, the Protestant Reformation was a tragedy. He was bemoaning the fact that we are 500 years on, still living with the consequences of that tragedy, and that it need not have taken place, that it would not have taken place in the modern world, that the Roman Catholic Church and the Lutheran Church have reached an agreement on the doctrine of justification. Now, I encourage you to visit the website. I want you to read the article I have posted to the Belfast Telegraph. And as I read that, I thought of David's rallying cry. Is there not a cause? And the answer to that question is yes. Brethren, sisters, there is a spiritual battle to be fought in our day and generation. There's a spiritual position to be maintained. The church of Jesus Christ must not retreat, must not roll over and play dead, must not act dumb. No, we must stand fast and we must hold to the traditions to what and which we have received. We must stand for truth and righteousness in our day. We must be prepared to defend the crown rights of King Jesus I think of Paul's words, Philippians 1, 17, I am set 
for the defense of the gospel. I'm not saying that we retreat to the past. I'm not suggesting that we live in the past. What I'm saying is that there are timeless principles, truths that were rediscovered, re-emphasized 500 years ago, that we must adhere to in our day and generation. Truths and principles that are not negotiable. The Bible exhorts us, buy the truth and sell it not. And we must stand fast and we must hold to the truths that were rediscovered and re-emphasized at the Reformation. So here's the question. How do we maintain a proper Reformation stand? Or what do we stand for? What does the Free Presbyterian Church stand for today? Let me suggest a number of things using this text mainly as a springboard. We stand fast for the primacy of Scripture. Therefore, brethren, stand fast. When the Apostle Paul exhorted the believers at Thessalonica to stand fast, he was doing so against the backcloth of other voices, other calls that were telling them to let go, telling them to loosen their grip, on certain things. And of course one of the things that the Roman Catholic Church and the ecumenical movement and the liberals and the modernists would want the church to let go of is to let go of the primacy of Scripture. And of course Roman believes to this day in Scripture. But not the primacy of Scripture. I've asked myself, why is there a plethora of modern versions that have caused confusion among the ranks of the evangelical reformed church today? And of course the answer is to sow doubt and distrust and and to spread some disquiet as to what is the word of God. And I thought to myself, how do we maintain a right stand for the, the Protestant Reformation? And and one of the things is we must have a high view, a high regard for the Bible, for the Holy Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. All Scripture, speaking of the Old Testament Paul was, was talking about, is given by God. By inspiration. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The word inspiration is theonustos. It's God breathed. The Bible doesn't merely contain the word of God. It is the word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant. It's authoritative. It's sufficient. It's clear. It's not key. On every issue. On every question. It has to be. What saith the scriptures? And if we have a right proper attitude and a right proper mindset when we're faced a dilemma, there's a situation has arisen, there's a difficulty it comes, here's the answer. What saith the scriptures? And we've got the example of the Lord Jesus, Matthew 21, verse 42. He was asked a question and this is how he answered it. Did you never read in the scriptures? 
And he quoted Psalm 118. He was referring to the Old Testament. In other words, he was talking about the stone which the builder rejected. He was pointing them back to what the Bible says. When he was asked about divorce, he, he, he said, have you never read in the book of Moses? And he pointed them back to what was in the beginning. He did the same thing in Matthew 22, verse 29, when he said to those that were asking him questions, you do err not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. You see, there's a tendency today to go with what is popular. A tendency to go with how one feels experimentally about a thing. There's a tendency today to go with what one thinks. doesn't matter what God's word says, what I think counts. There's a tendency today to do to go with the, the culture. Society has changed from 500 years ago. It's all about what I think and I feel. And what's popular. Martin Luther said this. God's word cannot fail. Thereby I remain. Though the whole world be against me. You see, before the word of God, everyone must give way. Everyone must bow the knee to the truth of the Holy Scriptures, rightly interpreted. We must judge all by the word of God. We must allow ourselves to be judged by the word of God. And that applies to abortion. That applies to the workplace and the loss of job and financial insecurity and difficulty. That applies to the home when there's problems. And of course the Bible is loose to say to wives and husbands and children, young people. That, that applies to, to sodomy and the same-sex marriage debate. Oh, we're told, don't bring the word of God into it. There's loads of arguments that are advanced and used for propaganda. And the sad thing is that even professing Christians argue for acceptance today of homosexual behavior. But for me, it's a question of authority. What saith the scriptures? And it may not be popular. It may not be conventional. But I want to know, is it biblical? The Bible says, Isaiah 8 and 20, to the law and to the testimony if they speak not according to this word, it is because there's no light in them. And all the pronouncements of men, including the scholars, including the Pope, and the cardinals, and the priests, and the preacher, all must be weighed in the balance of Holy Scripture. And all the practices of men, they all must be weighed in the same balance. And all the pledges of men must be weighed in the same balance. Didn't the Apostle John, writing in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1, he made this tremendous statement. He said, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. How are we to try the spirits? Here's the answer. We apply the word of God. We're not just going to accept everything and anything. We're not going to be blown about by every wind of doctrine. We're not going to let go because we're told to let go. I believe this morning in the primacy of the scriptures. The true Protestant church 
is the Bible alone. And only the Bible. And when Paul says, therefore, brethren, stand fast, he's talking about standing fast for the primacy of the scriptures. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, stand fast for the preaching of the Savior. I've asked the question, what does the Free Presbyterian Church stand for? And when it comes to preaching, what do we preach? And here's the answer. And those of you who were in the Martyrs Memorial saw it clear and plain on Friday night. We preach Christ crucified. Isn't that what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 23? You see, we live in a day when the preaching of the word of God is a low ebb. In many circles and many churches, preaching of the word of God is despised and dismissed. And maybe even disapproved of. I'm talking of professing evangelical so-called Protestant churches. Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a little bit of debate. Let's have the dance and the drums. Let's have the drama. All of these things. But let's not have preaching. Preaching's very negative. Preaching's boring, Mr. McLaughlin. We don't like it. And we don't want it. But I want to tell you this morning, as a congregation, the reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, Knox, Melanchthon, and a host of others, all had a different mindset. And they had a different method to today. And that is, under God, once they were converted and raised up by the Lord, they became preachers of the word of God. They had a high view of their calling. They were called to be preachers of the word. Think of what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 2. Preach the word. You see, for them that was a serious, spiritual, special work. And the word preach there means to herald. It means an authoritative public verbal proclamation. Did you know that Martin Luther preached three times every Lord's Day in Wittenberg? Did you know that the first service was at 5 a.m.? A bit early for us, wouldn't it? 9 a.m. was the next one. And the afternoon. Plus he preached every weekday. In the porter cabin there, there's the complete works of Luther. I could hook them out for you. 2,300 sermons. He, he quoted at one occasion, he made this statement, that the highest form of worship is the preaching of the word of God. He had a reputation for preaching. So had John Calvin. So had John Knox. Brother Mark posted a picture of the new church pulpit on the website. We wrote a piece there explaining what the pulpit is for. Do you know why we did that? Visit the church website. Look at that post. Peter Lund told us when we visited the martyrs that they had 600 school children from East Belfast, Protestant East Belfast. They were asked the question at the door of the martyrs before they ever went in, does anybody know what a pulpit is? All of the children, not one could answer. 
And then one wee boy, one day, did put his hand up, and he said he knew, and Peter was delighted. So he asked him, and this is what he said. Please don't laugh. A flower. A pulpit. He was thinking of tulip. Flower. It's related to that. You see, that's sad. That, that there's ignorance. That, that's lack of knowledge. Obviously those children don't go to regular worship in the house of God on a Sunday. But the preaching of the reformers was sound and systematic. It was biblical preaching of the Old and New Testament. John Calvin preached 200 sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. 350 sermons in the book of Isaiah. He spent five years in the book of Acts. He had 200 sermons on Corinthians. See the modern church, I, I want to tell you, five minutes of a prep talk. A certain homiletical professor who was teaching students about preaching said to preach no more than eight minutes at a time. In a church of Scotland 30 years ago, maybe 32, I remember sitting in it, and the sermon lasted four minutes, and I was furious and cross and wanted to have a go at the preacher. You see, there's a lack of biblical preaching ministry today. And there's a great challenge to maintain it. Why? Because the Bible says it pleased God through the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And yes, men may not want to listen. Yes, they may perceive it to be dry and boring. But I think of Paul in Acts chapter 20, 27, when he said, having called for the Ephesian elders, that he kept nothing back that was profitable for them. He left nothing out. It was not what was pleasing to them or tickled their ears, but that which was profitable. All that they needed to hear. He preached the whole counsel of God. And let me say this, and as he preached, he presented Christ to them. Acts 4 verse 12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. And Jesus Christ is the answer to every spiritual quest. <laughs> And Jesus Christ is the end of every spiritual question that a man can have. For Jesus Christ said, John 14 and 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And a true gospel ministry consists of preaching and the presentation of Christ. And, and folks, that's what gospel preaching is all about. It's not my opinions. It's not my philosophy. It's not my idea. It's not my views. It's not my theories. The preaching of the word of God is all about Christ. Jesus Christ is the sum and substance of true preaching. That can be proved very easily from the Bible. Acts 2 and 22. The day of Pentecost, Peter preached Christ. Acts 3, he preached Christ. Acts 5 and 42. Acts 8 and 5. Acts 8 and 33, Philip preached unto the Ethiopian eunuch, Jesus. Paul, in Acts 9, verse 20, after he was converted, preached that Christ is the Son of God. You see, that's the pattern of the New Testament. Think of Paul's statement, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 23. We preach Christ crucified. You see, it all centered in Christ. It, it, it all focused on him. 
it, it exalted him. It, it glorified him. Let me suggest to you this morning that means mentioning his unique person. When we speak of Christ, he's not just a good man or a great man, but he's the God man. He's the one who had two distinct natures in one person forever. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. It also means mentioning his sinless life. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him was no sin. He was separate from sinners. We can speak about the impeccability of Christ or the sinlessness of Christ. That's important that you understand that. And also we can speak about a sacrificial death and substitutionary atonement. Christ died for our sins. That is, he took our sins and his sorrows in his own body in the tree, suffered the wrath of God. He, he, he satisfied divine justice. We could speak about his bodily resurrection. He rose again bodily from the dead for our justification or because of our justification. In the light of it, it was proof that God accepted his sacrificial death. And that God raised him bodily from the dead. We could talk about his glorious ascension to God's right hand. Hebrews 10 and 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down in the right hand of God. We could talk about his return and power and glory. Jesus Christ is coming back. He's coming to reward his people. He's coming to take vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And what does the gospel call you to do? To repent and believe. You see, the theme is to get to Christ. To, 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 to get you to the cross of Christ. To see everything in life and death through the eyes of Christ. And through his cross work. It all relates to his personal work. He is an exclusive saviour. There's none other. He's an exalted saviour. We must have a high view of Jesus Christ. He's an effective saviour. He saves. He's an eternal saviour. Think of Hebrews. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever. He doesn't change. So let me ask, do you know him? Is Jesus Christ your Lord and Saviour? Have you been found by him as a lost sheep? Has he laid hold upon you by his grace? Can he tell you this morning, you're mine? Can you say in truth, now I belong to Jesus? Jesus belongs to me, not for the years of time alone, but for eternity. Thirdly, we must stand fast for the proclamation of salvation. Think of the question that Martin Luther wrestled with. How can a man be just before God? The word just means righteous or sinlessly perfect. And the answer is he can't by himself because Romans 3 and 10 tells us for there's none righteous, no, not one. And Martin Luther discovered that. He said, what good works can proceed out of a heart like mine? How can I with works like these stand before a holy God? Even in the monastery in, 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 in uh, Erford, he, he said, if ever a monk were to get to heaven by my monkery, it would be I. I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers and recitings and other works. And then he discovered the just shall live by faith. He discovered by the Spirit of God through reading the Word of God that salvation was by grace alone, in Christ alone, received through faith alone. That it wasn't by the church. 
That, that it wasn't by his good works. That it wasn't by the performance of rites and ceremonies. His, his fastings, his prayers, his pilgrimage, his payments, his practice. Know that salvation was in Christ. And let me tell you this morning, the Roman Catholic Church believed then in justification by faith, but it never believed in justification by faith alone. That's a completely different thing. And that's what the Reformation was all about. The battle was over one word, alone. And we, we need to understand that. And, and Luther seemed that in Christ, I can be legally justified. In Christ I'm accepted by God and treated as legally righteous. That, that Christ's righteousness is put to my account. That legally I have real peace with God. That legally I am washed in the precious blood of Christ. You see, out of Christ, without Christ, you have nothing. But in Christ you have everything. The Pope of Rome says to this day, that outside the church, that's the church of Rome, there's no salvation. But I have a message for the Pope this morning. Even Pope Francis, the Jesuit Pope. Salvation's not in the church. Salvation is in Christ. I don't have to be in the church to be saved. But I have to be in Christ. I have to be in saving union with him. So when we call to stand fast, we're calling not only for the primacy of the scriptures and the preaching of the Savior, but for the proclamation of salvation. That salvation's in Christ alone, received by faith alone, through grace alone. Let me tell you quickly in the few minutes that we have, standing fast for a practical sanctification. See, the word of God that we're judged by has an impact on our lives. It affects my walk with God. Once I become a Christian, once I received salvation and brought into Christ, now that I'm a true Christian, I, I ought to live a life of practical holiness before God. It affects my work for God. It affects my worship of God. We live in an age when anything goes, what appeals, what draws a crowd. But the true church clings to the word. What does God require? What are the elements of true worship? The reading of the word, preaching, congregational praise, the offering of prayer, the giving of gifts and offerings, the observance of the Lord's Supper. See, the church has no business to set it aside. Preachers and elders and deacons have no business to set it aside because these are the things that make up the elements of true worship. They're found in the word of God. These are the very things that we will do. Not because they're contemporary. Not because they're traditional. But it's what is biblical. And I hear so many people saying, oh, we want a conventional service. Or we want a traditional service. But they never ask, is it a biblical service? And we must stand for a practical sanctification in all of these areas. Our walk, our work, our worship. We also stand for a personal supplication. You know what's wonderful? We had a Reverend John Greer here preached a message on the priesthood of all believers. Isn't it wonderful that you as an individual, you can go to God in prayer. You children can go and talk to God in prayer. You women can go to talk to God in prayer. You men can do the same thing. You see, 
That, that all came out of the Reformation. If the Reformation had never have taken place, we would never have known to go to God and talk to him alone in prayer. You would have had to go to the priest or you had to go through a host of other intermediaries to go to God. Isn't prayer the Christian's vital breath? You can come believing. Glory to God. You can come expectantly. You can come personally. You can come daily. You can come penitently. God accepts me in Christ. You'll never be perfect. We'll always sin in thought and word and deed. Every day. But our acceptance is in Christ. And in Christ we can draw nigh. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Paul says that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Did you know that John Calvin in the Christian Institutes, the largest chapter in that Institutes, you know what it was about? It was dedicated to the subject of prayer because Calvin believed in the priesthood of all believers. That we could go to God believingly, directly, personally, ourselves in the name of Christ and, and have a, 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 a talk with God. And sixthly and lastly, you'll be glad to hear that, standing fast for the power of speaking. You see, because the Reformation men didn't keep silent, once they were enlightened, they spoke up and they spoke out. And yes, many of them lost their lives as a result. But the Bible tells us, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show the house of Judah their sins. In other words, they weren't afraid when it come to, to public speaking. Their voice was heard in a godless age. And I want to say in closing, the voice of the Bible-believing, reformed Protestant church needs to be heard loud and clear in our day and generation. Our mindset is not an inch. Our mindset is we refuse to let go. We're not going to be led astray by deception. We're not going to allow ourselves to be fooled or subdued. We're going to carry on following the old paths. We're going to hold on to the old truths. And I'm saying this morning, let's not keep silent. Let's raise a protest for Christ's sake in our day and generation. See, it's good to look back, but it's 500 years from 1517. And yes, we do live in a different world. But the men of that age were concerned with what was right. And if it was right, then they let the consequences be with God wherever they fell. And we need to stand fast for the power of speaking as well. That we have a right to speak in Christ's name. May the Lord bless these six truths to you this morning.